This excursion in history will deal with one of the attempts of labor to better the lot of the working man. During the early days of the 1900s, the working man's lot was a hard road. One of the attempts for the working man to better his living conditions came with the anthracite coal strike of 1902. It will come at a time when the entire nation was supplied by coal. Steam engines, which powered heating plants to keep buildings warm during the winters, they were powered by coal, as were ocean-going vessels, as were steam locomotives, which ran the railroads. Practically every aspect of life was influenced somehow by coal. This strike will come at a time when the average miner earned $560 per year. Yes, $560 per year. That's an average of about $1.60 a day. The hours that were worked were 12 hours per day in the pits, seven days a week. Some of the workers never saw sunlight. To make matters worse, employees were forced to purchase their goods at the company-run store. You either bought your things at the company store at their prices, or you didn't work for the company. There is one case on record where a man by the name of Chippy was killed in a cave-in. He owed the company store money. So the company was kind enough to let his 10-year-old son, Andrew, go to work in the mines to pay off his father's debt. The company only took 40 cents a day from his wages. Now, what do you think? Weren't conditions in the mines pretty horrible? Would you have changed places with the people who lived in the good old days? No, I don't think you would. In May of 1902, the president of the United Mine Workers felt that his union was strong enough to strike against management. The president of the United Mine Workers was a man by the name of John Mitchell. He was unlike most union leaders, who were rabble-rousing radicals. He was shy, earnest, quiet, and above all, well-mannered. But before Mitchell called a strike of the mine workers, he decided to try and negotiate with the mine owners. All he was asking for was a 20% increase in wages, which would bring the average daily wage to $1.92 a day, an eight-hour day, and recognition of the union by management as the bargaining agent for the men. The mine owners would have none of it. Their spokesman was a wealthy man by the name of George Bear. As far as he was concerned, it was just a waste of money. Why, just two years ago, they had given those lazy loafers a 10% increase in wages. And just because they had done it once before, well, that didn't mean they'd do it again. And so, the strike was called. You must remember that when these workers went out on strike, they had no further income to sustain themselves or their families. It took a great deal of courage to walk out of the job in that day and age. But walk out they did for what they believed were just and right working conditions. The strike dragged on May, June, July, August, through September. By the end of September, the days started getting cold, 
and since all public places were heated by cold, they now had to shut down. Even schools had to close. Trains had to be canceled. Ships were being rescheduled. The situation in the country was becoming chaotic, yet neither side showed any signs of weakening. Finally, in October of 1902, with winter coming on fast, a third person took an interest in the strike. Who? The Big Stick, that's who. The Big Stick, of course, refers to the President of the United States at that time, who was Theodore Roosevelt. He sent telegrams to both labor and management and asked them to meet with him in Washington, D.C. The public wondered what was up. Presidents had never tried to settle a strike before, although some presidents had broken them up. The public didn't have long to wait, as the meeting took place on October 3, 1902, at 22 Jackson Place in Washington, D.C., which was the residence of the president. You see, the White House at this time was undergoing one of its periodic renovations. It was being remodeled. When the meeting got underway, President Roosevelt informed both parties that he represented a third party in this strike, the public. He went on to say that he had no legal right to call them together, but he was appealing to their patriotic feeling and for the good of the country to settle the strike. John Mitchell, who was more than willing to settle the strike and to get the men back to work, suggested to the president that an impartial commission be set up to study the conditions and then report back to the president their recommendations for a settlement. And regardless of what they recommended as a settlement, said Mitchell, the miners would go along with the commission's decision. Roosevelt suggested that the group adjourn for lunch. This move would give the mine owners a chance to talk over what Mitchell had suggested, and then at the afternoon session, they could give their point of view. The mine owners went back to their plush Pullman cars, and there they vented their anger and fury on what was being done there in Washington. Once the afternoon session got underway, George Bear, the spokesman for the mine owners, took the floor and thundered out that the duty of the hour was not to waste time negotiating with the fomenters of anarchy and those who are in insolent defiance of the law. The thing to do was to do what was done in the past, restore the majesty of law, the only true guardian of the people, and to put down the strike. One of the other mine owners, a man by the name of George Truesdale, also expressed concern. He stated that he had many children working in his mines, and he felt that it was positively dangerous for these young minds to be idle with nothing to do and to be in contact with radicals like Mitchell. Finally, Bear snarled at the president. We object being called here to meet with this criminal, even by the president of the United States. And with that, he and the other mine owners stormed out of the meeting. As President Roosevelt later recalled, he felt that the only person that behaved like a gentleman was Mitchell. President Roosevelt now thought up a new plan whereby he could end the coal strike. His idea was revolutionary. He had made plans with the governor of the state of Virginia, Governor Stone, 
that the next time that violence from the strike broke out, Governor Stone should pretend that he could not handle the violence and call the president and request federal assistance. That would be all that President Roosevelt would need. He would send in federal troops and take over the mines. The government would then run the mines until the mine owners and the men could work out a settlement. In that way, the public would be insured of coal for the winter. Why? Why, this was unbelievable. This had never happened before. Not once in the history of the country had the government taken over private industry. When Roosevelt told the members of his cabinet what he intended doing, they were flabbergasted. One cabinet member, the Secretary of War, a man by the name of Elihu Root, asked the president if he might not be given the chance to settle the strike before the president took so drastic a step. The president agreed, and so Elihu Root went to see a friend of his in New York City, a certain Mr. J. Pierpont Morgan. He went to New York City and saw Morgan and told him just what the president was planning to do. Morgan was struck dumb. Why, why, he wouldn't dare. He... Then Morgan stopped. Yes, he might dare. This was the same president that had brought antitrust proceedings against him, the great Morgan. Morgan thought for a moment. If the president was allowed to do this, it would set a precedent. Just think of what he might do in the future. No, no, thought Morgan. The strike must be settled before Roosevelt took over the mines. Morgan now took command of the situation. He sent telegrams to all of the mine owners and suggested that they meet with him in New York City. And they all did. Once in Morgan's offices, Morgan suggested that the mine owners appoint an impartial commission to look into the miners' demands and that whatever the commission reported back, the mine owners should best abide by that decision. Say, isn't that the same idea that Mitchell had recommended to the president in Washington? Yes, it was. But now, since the idea was coming from J. Pierpont Morgan, the greatest tycoon of their day, it made more sense. Most of the mine owners thought that it was a great idea. Why, if only someone had thought of it earlier. It was a sheer stroke of brilliance. And so it was that an impartial commission was set up at Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. They looked into the demands of the miners, and when it was over, all agreed that what the miners were asking for was not unrealistic. All demands were approved. The people of the United States were overjoyed that the strike was over, and what excited them most was the role that the president had taken in engineering its settlement. Nothing like it had ever happened before. President Roosevelt now gave the government a new stature merely by bringing the parties together in Washington, D.C. He also excited the people when he stated that he was the representative of a third party in the strike, the public. He sowed the seed of a new and exciting idea. Instead of being passive spectators from now on, the people themselves had an active part to play in shaping a better world yet to come. A great revelation had occurred to the people of the United States after this strike. 
Where evil was known to exist before, people either accepted it as part of the game or felt that there was nothing they could do about it anyhow. But Roosevelt now had changed all of that. It seemed as if this president had awakened the nation's conscience. The significance of all of this was that Roosevelt had brandished the famous big stick once again, and the federal government took on a new dimension. The chief executive was no longer a decorative bystander. He was now swatting the bad and defending the good. And indeed, a better way of life for all of the citizens was in the making for the people of the United States.